Incoming transmission from the Babylon Project. Welcome to the Babylon Project, our last best hope for trash. This is a rewatch podcast for Babylon 5, featuring two veterans of the show and one newbie. I am your newbie host, Justin, and here to help me along are my co-hosts, Jude and Anna. Jude, Anna, how are you doing? I am, buckle up, going on a vacation. Oh my god. I know, right? It's weird for me, too. Um, weirder I'm yet. I'm excited for you. I'm not. Um, it's a place that doesn't have a lot of internet, which is scary, and it's near the ocean, which is extra scary. But it is uh, going to be. It's with my uh, my son's cousins are very excited to celebrate his birthday. They're God. What are they? He's five, so they're like nine and eleven or something like that. And they have been planning his birthday party for like two and a half weeks now. Nice. Like setting it up nice so it's gonna be i have no idea what to expect uh but it's gonna be funny either way uh so yeah we're going out to their beach house and uh we'll see what happens i, I think with the lack of internet that this is something that they call unplugging and i think it's supposed to be good yeah yeah um, but you know what happens when you unplug someone they die <laughs> So, like they die you have they pass laws to make it so you can't do that without like written consent from the rest from your family or your loved ones so i, I will say that whenever when, whenever i go to the outer rim which is uh my parents place in the middle of buttfuck nowhere having like very have like there's no cell service there like there's still wi-fi but there's no cell service that mm-hmm. like extra twenty percent is just like that is it makes it infinitely more relaxing. We'll see. I uh it doesn't help that I'm like buried in work. So being forced to like not work, I think will be a nice change. Cause I definitely won't be able to work because I'm not gonna be able to do that. Um but being like forcibly disconnected from the internet will be a weird experience. Excellent. Anna, how you doing? Doing pretty well. Um my my exciting thing of the day is that i finally upgraded my os to os 11 which was you know a terrifying experience as the computer hung on the you know, last sliver of the progress bar for about four hours progress bars in my experience are prophecy they're they're like your computer like a progress bar is basically your computer huffing burning herbs and poisons and trying to predict when it will complete a task uh, with no actual idea when that will, when that will be. Yeah, that, that sounds about right. That's part, most of my job is watching progress bars. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like I would like the progress bar to just keep moving in some way. The, the, the part mm-hmm. that's scary is when it ceases to move, not, you know, when, yeah. when there's no indication that anything is progressing and it's like, well, you know, this last air quotes 3% is going to take 90% of the time. Uh, and you're just staring at it being like, did my computer brick itself? Is it okay? Who knows? Yeah. It's a mystery. Only yeah, time yeah. will tell. Yep. No, I'm, I've been there. Okay, cool. 
All right. So now that we've gotten our various progress bar related talk out of the way, <laughs> um, I have a question for you both. Okay. What is your modern updated job title for whatever evil duties you perform? This is like pain technician, you know. Mm-hmm. 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 Next separator, you know what? What, what is that? What is what job title do you have now in uh, Emperor Cartagia's Brave New World? Uh, I'm going to go with uh, hematological metaphysicist, which is a particularly on brand uh, bit of bullshit. But if you follow me on Twitter, you will know that my blood magic enthusiasm is uh, pretty pretty strong. So that's what I'm going to go with. Uh, yeah, hematological metaphysicist. Hmm. I feel like office diplomat might work. <laughs> um for being for being that person who like has to go and talk to people i have a winner for that one do tell <laughs> it's it's hematological metaphysics <laughs> <laughs> yeah um so speaking about pain technicians we are covering oh, yeah. two episodes tonight those are episodes three and four of season four the summoning and Falling Towards Apotheosis. What an episode title. Yeah, one of the all-time great episode titles. All I know is I did not write either of these summaries, so we're in for a treat. And I use that treat <laughs> with air quotes. I only did one of them. I don't know why you're being, oh. why you're throwing shade here. On the summaries are perfectly no, acceptable. No, those are, that's fine. Yeah, we're, <laughs> we've only got half an episode to worry about. Who's, who has the summoning here? Anna, take us away. All right. So the summoning, um, episode three of season four, written by JMS and directed by John McPherson. So everyone, we are still in season four, which means there's a lot going on here. Um, I will attempt to structure this as best I can, but there's five plots going on in this shit. <laughs> So in plot one, uh, Ivanova is getting restless and wants to make sure that she completes all the side quests before hitting a critical plot point and getting locked out of the achievements until New Game Plus. <laughs> she approaches Delenn about borrowing a white starship to go and find more first ones. She's confident that she can do it alone because she's been studying Mimbari at Marcus's suggestion, mm-hmm. but uh, she only gets a B minus on her pop quiz and Delenn convinces her to take Marcus along. Cue cheering from the audience. She's been using the, uh, what do you call it? Uh, Duolingo version to, to learn Minbari and uh, has been missing some pronunciation and uh, grammar, I, I suspect. Yeah, yeah. No shade on Duolingo. I'm just saying her. She's not, all, she's, she's not uh, entirely conversational just yet. I think maybe she should have sprung for Rosetta Stone. Yeah. Rosetta Boneridge. Oof. Uh, so, so Ivanova and Marcus don't have a lot of luck on their search, which is guided largely by rumors and legends about weird phenomena and godlike beings in the cosmos. We do get some really solid banter between them, and we learn that Marcus has never had a serious relationship before. Um, I have thoughts about this, but we'll save them for after the summary. They do run across something odd, though, a pocket of hyperspace hidden by a distortion field. The Vorlon tech on the White Star lets them slip inside, where they see a giant fuck-off Vorlon fleet, complete with a flagship that is, I'm pretty sure, bigger than B5 itself. Yeah. They get the hell out of there and head back to the station to inform the others that the Vorlons are on the move. 
on to plot two. The Precari ambassador comes to Delen and explains that the other species formerly in the Alliance have moved on from simply not wanting to act to planning a rally in the Zocalo in order to stop Delen's proposed assault on Zahadum. Delen is still convinced that now is the time to strike, while the shadows are still reeling from Sheridan nuking the planet. Before departing, the ambassador notes that his government has picked up an unknown ship heading toward the station and asks Delen whether she knows anything about it. She does not. As the rally starts and Delen heads there to make her voice heard, said strange ship does reach the station and uses station access codes to enter the docking bay. A security team meets it on the docking uh, platform, prepared to deal with the invaders, and is shocked to find Sheridan and Lorian exiting. Sheridan heads to the Zocalo to join Delenn at the rally and arrives just as the Drazi ringleader is saying that if they attack Zahadum, then they will die as Sheridan did. The Drazi is shocked to see Sheridan appear and says, uh, sorry, we thought you were dead. Sheridan replies with, I was, I'm better now, before addressing the crowd. He urges them toward action and to assemble the greatest fleet in the history of the galaxy in order to fully defeat the shadows and end the war for good. John and Delent embrace and he promises to never leave her again. I swear to God, if they could have done it without like copyright infringement, it would have been a Monty Python reference. I got better. It's exactly, yeah. you, you just know that Sheridan really, really would have dropped a Monty Python joke there. Uh, alternately, alternately could have been like the Princess Bride, you know, only mostly dead. Only mostly, yes. Also, and potentially an even better option, actually. That would, that Sheridan would to- Sheridan, Sheridan yeah. totally quotes the Princess Bride. Yeah, yeah, Sheridan's definitely more of a Princess Bride than Monty Python guy. Absolutely. Absolutely. So plot three is also on the station. Based on the information that Jakar found, Zach Allen has tracked down the transport, which supposedly found Garibaldi's Star Fury. He goes out, accompanied by fighters, to investigate. The ship refuses to respond to his hails, and Zack and his team disable it. Before they can board, however, the ship jettisons an escape pod and self-destructs. The pod contains Garibaldi, who is saran-wrapped to a table and watching a kaleidoscope pattern that looks awfully similar to the one controlling noted zombie robot Abel Horn back in A Spider in the Web. It says, activating program, and we cut to Garibaldi being taken to Medlab. Zack explains to Franklin that he doesn't know who was holding Garibaldi or what happened to him, and Franklin reassures him that the prognosis is good and Garibaldi should recover. Against medical advice, Garibaldi heads out with the security team to greet the mysterious alien ship and sees Sheridan return. Plot 4 features Lita continuing to struggle with Kosh 2.0. Delenn visits Lita and finds that there is nothing in her quarters except for a bare mattress and a computer console. Lita explains that the Vorlon required her to remove anything that might distract her from her work and was only narrowly convinced to let Lita keep the bed. Delenn asks Lita to find out why the Vorlons are not assisting in the assault on Zahadum. Lita says that the Vorlons appear to have plans of their own and that they have no interest in sharing those with her. Despite her fear of Kosh 2.0, Lita promises to try to help Delenn. Later, Lita confronts the Vorlon, saying that she deserves respect for all she's done for them. He dismisses her and she takes a shot at scanning him. He then slams her across the room, taunts her, and we cut on her screaming. 
We next see her collapse on the mattress as Ivanova fetches her for the War Council. All of these plots converge as the War Council meets in Sheridan's office. Sheridan explains what he's learned about the Shadow and Vorlon objectives, and the what he's learned about the erosion of the past balance between them. Garibaldi is extremely suspicious of Florian and isn't satisfied with the secrecy surrounding Sheridan's return, nor of Sheridan's assurances that everything's fine and Lorian can be trusted. Ivanova, Marcus, and Lita join the meeting and reveal what they now know. The Vorlons have assembled an assault fleet, including a planet-killer weapon, and have decided it's time to destroy not just the shadows, but everything touched by them, including entire worlds. The Army of Light now apparently must fight off the Vorlons, in addition to the Shadows. Finally, we have the events on Centauri Prime. Cartagia is torturing Jakar to both Londo and Veer's discomfort, and is extremely dissatisfied by Jakar's performance as victim. No matter what is done to him, he refuses to scream, even to the point of passing out before screaming. Uh, Cartagia explains that if Jakar keeps this up, he'll have to be killed for not being enough fun. With this, Veer truly realizes the Emperor's madness and gets fully on board with this whole regicide business. Londo visits Jakar in his cell and begs for the Narn to put aside his pride and scream for the Emperor for the sake of both of their planets. Jakar tells Londo that he doesn't understand what he's asking. In the next scene, Veer and Londo are woken up in the middle of the night and led to Cartagia's secret torture chamber. Jakar is to be whipped with a device which will kill him on the 40th stroke. Jakar withstands the punishment and screams after the 39th stroke, but before the 40th can fall. And that's an episode broken up into, you know, digestible cookie-sized chunks. Yeah. Man, where do you even start with that goddamn episode? I want to start with actually the last thing we talked about. Um, so I took it, so with re- with reference to the the 40th, the, the 40 strokes, mm-hmm. God, Jamus really wanted to write a Jesus story, so much so that he did two in the same episode. (laughs) (laughs) For historical context, for anybody who might not be, like, who maybe doesn't want to revisit The Passion of the Christ, because... Why would you? Not a great movie, um, and sort of a bummer-like story. Um, And, like, you know, this is probably coming out in, like, November or something, so... Easter is like seven months away or whatever. That that movie had far less passion in it than I was expecting. Yeah. Passion of the Christ, too. Jesus fucks. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'd watch that. If you don't uh, think there's already a porn of that that you can get off the internet, I'm sure it's out there. The historical context for the 40 strokes is that within the Roman Empire, it was considered lethal to lash someone 40 times. So they would only ever uh, assign someone to be lashed 39 times. And notably, the, like, the most popular, or the most well-known instance of this is Jesus. Like, he was lashed 39 times during Good Friday. This is a, like, this is a thing. Hmm. And, well, then we've got Sheridan over there who is just, Literally come back from the dead. Who's literally coming back from the dead. And, you know, it, it's... God, JMS, what were, you, <laughs> yeah. what, what were you doing that you were just like, I want to just do all the Jesus. <laughs> yeah. It gets even worse in the next episode, which we'll talk about later. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Weirdly, I don't hate it, though. 
I don't, I definitely don't hate it with Jakar because I am on board <laughs> with, well, I mean, I've been, yeah. on, I've been on the record as being on board with this redemptive, re like redemptive spiritual growth arc that, that, that Jakar has been on since like the third episode of season one or whatever it is that, that they start him with that. Mm -hmm. It's legitimately my favorite part of the show is watching Jakar grow as a leader and as a person and find new depth and the way that people respond to him as a consequence. I, I think it's terrific. That said, man, you remember when you tell people that you're like doing a podcast about B5 and they're like, oh, that corny sci-fi show. And you're like, no, the one where the guy gets brutally whipped 39 times and then screams in agony that one and and they don't cut they don't like start out with one two and then cut to 35 or something like that no you're there for every single one yeah and then it's like no that one and then you know oh the guy whipping him is the guy with the the closet full of heads you know like like Dahmer or the one with the the you know the the person being abused by her boss in the other scenes in this episode like yep. this Babylon 5 for all it has moments of like bouncy cardboard set ism at times is it's episodes like this that really remind you how ambitious its reach was and how successful it was in spite of all of its limitations, how, how greatly it succeeded in that reach. I mean, yeah. we dunk on JMS like he's a, like he's a toddler basketball hoop. But in all due respect, he delivers like fucking USPS throughout seasons three and four here. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah, there, there's there's occasionally I'm talking to people out of life and they're like, you're a little harsh on the show at some place. And I'm like, no, there's some stuff that just hasn't aged well and is funny. Yeah. But like, like we give credit where this is due. Like we, we all say like, hey, we like this episode or stuff. I, and I think like this is this is truly some of the best stuff in the show like flat out not to pick a side in the whole star trek versus babylon 5 thing but i now granted i did not watch as much ds9 as other people but i watched the shit out of tng and there is i can't name a tng episode that let me put it this way i never wanted to fuck any of the aliens on tng the way <laughs> i know as many people want to fuck jakar and I just think there's there's not as much on T TNG is a terrific show and so is DS9 but the ambition there is tempered by the at times and I think there's a I just admire that ambition to be yeah. to be so much more than the trappings of its budget make it look like if you don't know what you're watching I do have a question because we need to make this clarification point because you might be very well wrong about the about the the people horny for alien thing. Do we count androids as alien? No, I get it. I get it. People people <laughs> people want to he, he's fully functional. I know. And like and let's, programmed let's, for a number like, of different Brent things. Brent Spiner is like between between I know that Brent people want to climb Brent Spiner's data character like a jungle gym. I'm well yeah. aware of that. There's also Worf. Don't get me yeah, I'm well aware. <laughs> well aware that Worf has like never nude energy. Yes, he does. <laughs> that's, that's my that's my I'm gonna duck on TNG here. But Worf has Worf is like Worf is like the weird religious 
That's like, not, not just that's not just no. on TNG. You remember when they went to Ryza? Yeah, and like, and like he was a never Worf, nude. Worf, you've got to like Worf, you've got to like engage him, and you've got to like draw a little blood before he'll fuck you. And let's and, and like <laughs> that's not for everybody. It's not for everybody. Like okay, like here here here. We're gonna drop. I'm gonna drop my hottest take. Worf is a bottom. <laughs> I don't think that's a hot take, dude. I don't think that's a hot take. You watch those episodes of DS9 with him and Dax. It's yeah. entirely clear who who tops who in that relationship. Absolutely. New host of the Dax symbiont is the bottom. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, anyway, my point was just I love TNG. There are epi- there are parts of DS9, the parts I watched of DS9 that I really really enjoyed. Comma. But Nothing in that show, for me at least, approached the charismatic intensity that that Babylon Five nails, and the the ambition and the reach of that show. You would never see somebody whipped thirty nine times with that kind of like single minded intensity. Yeah, on on a Star Trek show, and it's not a dig on Star Trek. It's just Star Trek's format and its Star Trekiness is doing something else. Yeah, you have different expectations. Yeah, and it's just, it, it gives Babylon 5 something, it, it's unleashed from the expectations of what a Star Trek looks like and does, and it lets it have this ambition that is really special. It's got a lot of things that sort of, one would generally think of as belonging in other genres. Mm-hmm. Yeah, this is sort of the culmination of where we're getting to the point of like, the show it's it's moving from the trad space opera to honestly it, the closest thing i'm going to i'm going to piss off jude by saying this but like the closest thing that i'll think of is like where where b5 is at this point is like a storm of sorts specifically where you where you've got a lot of different plots in play and you're you're ranging the genre between an epic like high stakes apocalypse mm-hmm. with the Vorlons now revealed and like these intrigue and characters being forced to work together to yeah. save a planet and like with with Jakar and Londo that I think there's like these all these are sort of like well, that's a fair comparison. Yeah. 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 Um it's good. Yeah. Um it's funny, this run of episodes, and I'll, this is true of the next episode as well. Um, when I sat down to watch these two episodes for tonight, all I remembered about either one was that Jakar got whipped and then what he does in the next episode. That's yeah. it. I completely forgot about the Vorlon stuff. I remember that, that Sheridan came back, but like everything that happens in, in Apotheosis, no recollection of it in this episode. Like all the stuff with Garibaldi being saran wrapped to a table and Zach finding him. Nope. I literally remembered Sheridan comes back and then like the Jakar. I remember the angle that they shot the scene when they whipped Jakar. And the and the lighting too. Yeah. The lighting remember, of the faces. Yeah. I remembered that scene so clearly. And I don't know if that's because I'm weird about Jakar or. You know, Stephen First and Peter Jurassic and whoever oh, yeah. the fuck played Cartesia. Uh, I'll s- just absolutely sell the hell out of that scene that, yeah. you know, without the looks of like 
horror and glee on the faces, this the scene wouldn't mm-hmm. be what it is. Oh, absolutely. All of them are really delivering great performances here where they look, it's a tableau of like, Veer is not even pretending to not be horrified. Londo's like doing his best to be the good advisor so he doesn't blow the game. And Kartashi is just like nuttier than squirrel poo at this point. <laughs> yeah. I mean, he's just... And, and the way that he's like sitting there, you know, in his torture chamber being like, chin hands. He's even got like a special torture chair. Yeah. yeah. That he like, he must have had like ordered from like Sharper Image or something. And he's like <laughs> lounging in it sideways with his boots. Yeah. No, he's got a real. There, there's also the aspect that, you know, of all of the various plots, I think this one does, it doesn't take up the majority of time in the episode, but it takes up more time than any of the other plots that we flit around between. And mm-hmm. because we've got all of these relatively disjoint things going on in the station that kind of all mm-hmm. converge when they all hit the war room at the end. Yeah. Yeah. This is very much a, it's, it's very much like a linking episode. It'll, like w- you'll see these like, more like these these appear much more in like current prestige television where there's like there's no real plot to this episode the plot like the story of this episode is moving along every plot yeah like that's like half the episodes in like an hbo series now yeah yeah where it's just like we're just telling one story and we just have these bridge episodes and it's and it's really interesting to see this because seasons one through three really had very few episodes like that there was always kind of the assumption that everything had its own plot. And yeah. even even when there was the overarching plot that they were contained within, you know, you'd kind of pick up an episode and watch it from start to finish and you'd there would be yeah. a story. He's completely abandoned the single episode yeah. format at this point. It's a thing that's, you know, the only real the only real series that is doing that at this point. On yeah. television is Twin Peaks that is being put on like primetime network television. Yeah. yeah. Do we want to talk about things that aren't Jakar? I mean, we can. I mean, so. <laughs> I, I have one thing that I want to yeah. talk about. Please. So Marcus's revelation that, you know, he he's a virgin, that there's never been anybody who he, you know, felt strongly enough about to yeah. to want to be intimate with. I, I feel like it's almost there sideways as like maybe demi representation or something like that. I got a very strong vibe of that off of. Yeah. I don't think I mean, it was intentional, but. I mean, that's a term that isn't in the modern lexicon at this point. But I think that's a fair, like, I think that's a pretty fair read of the character that, like, you know, it, it, it's. I've never found the right person. And I'd want it to be with somebody I really care about. And I think that's like, yeah, that in a modern 2021 setting, that is 100% the read. Yeah. <laughs> it's in, it's interesting to see in, you know, in a, in a show of this era. Yeah. And he's also well, like, you know, Ivanova ribs him a little bit for it, but it's definitely friendly ribbing as opposed to like mocking him for it or anything like that. Yeah. I think it's also interesting that it's from, I mean, given that the show is, this is like 1997, 98 or something like that. Marcus is our, our warrior Mm -hmm. character. Yep. And he, I I have a suspicion that they're kind of leaning into the, 
Arthurian knight archetype with him here. Mm-hmm. Oh, absolutely. I really like that that's the depiction of martial strength that JMS has chosen for his show. Think about it. I, I do think it's terrific that the warrior that he has selected to represent humanity in this show is a big soft boy himbo. Marcus yeah. is so good. It's it's great. Well, and it's a it's a depiction of what it what it can mean to be strong in a in a, that's very different. I mean, it was a very. I remember watching that show, and I remember Marcus being a very different kind of character for that time. Imagine Marcus on fucking any other show. He would just be fucking everything that moved. Yeah, he he'd be macho. He'd be violent. He'd be a braggart. Uh, and instead, we get. Percival. Yep. For all intents and purposes, which is terrific. Hats off to JMS for doing something different and good in this case. Considering the other forms of representation that JMS slid into the show or tried to slide into the show, you know, I yeah. wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me to learn that that was intentional. Yeah. Can I go back to uh Cartagia for just one quick thing? Sure. Um, I've, I've got a couple of things that I've still got that I've still got on the on the brain. So. <laughs> uh, the the rag over the shoulder. Oh my god, that's such a it's the it's, fun, it's the best bit. Of the scene. I'm gonna best, like, I'm gonna make episode. a I'm gonna make a gif of it because it's so good. According to Lurker's guide, that whole scene was improv. The guy behind him is some some like extra from the prop department. That was just like standing there because he he fit the headpiece for the hair, and <laughs> the actor for Cartagena is wiping blood off Jakar's blood off his hand and just chucks the the thing over his shoulder, exp- like as if it's to be caught. And the guy just watches it go by, and the expression on his face is so good; it is so perfect. I'm so glad they kept that take where he's yeah. just like default. <laughs> Yeah, the look on his face is just like gold. Yeah, it's it's. Was I supposed to catch that? <laughs> it's so good. I and it's just into the bush. <laughs> it's so good. I laugh at that scene and then back it up and watch it again every time I watch this episode. Speaking speaking of scenes that make me laugh out loud every single time, Ivanova speaking in Mbari. Yeah. God. Yeah. Like <laughs> it's what like, like hat rack lingerie. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. Where, where, like, if one of his head is turned away, and Marcus's face is just like, I can't keep it together to laugh. <laughs> He's just like, I'm sorry, mom, I can't do it. I also want to raise the the interesting point that uh, apparently there is a word for lingerie in Minbari. Yeah, it's your sexy temple clothes. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> your sexy monk's habit. Okay, so I don't know where I'm going with this, but it's a good preface. This isn't me. This isn't me. I'm thinking too much about a specific thing. Um, we we are not going into. I have a this, like one throwaway line is the uh, is means I'm going to predict the end of the series. Um, we're not there. Okay. But Cartagia's name. JMS has had a predilection for 15th and 16th century history and his references before. Oh, but absolutely. Cortez, uh, Torquemada with the Spanish Inquisition. I am wondering if there is a reference that is being made with Cartagia's name. Okay. This is this is me bullshitting entirely and me not wanting to put in any amount of research. I'm prepping my blank face. 
the thing that kept that, that it sounds like is Cartagena or Cartagena if you're if you really want to be fancy about it but Cartagena because I'm a filthy American and can't pronounce names correctly but that was a that was a uh, prominent uh, Spanish imperial colony in the New World in what is now modern day Colombia which takes its name from a city from Spain which eventually comes from Carthage and listen Carthage must burn <laughs> I don't know if this was intentional but this is my <laughs> interesting I mean, I I could see him doing that on purpose. Yeah. Certainly with his, like, I'm going to let my planet burn because I'm going to be a god. Like, yeah. Yeah. God, he's crazy. Yeah. I don't have, like, a hypothesis of this. Because we're, we're past, like, and we'll see this more in the next episode, but, you know, Cartagia is past, like, you know, fiddling while Rome burns. Like, he's mm-hmm. he's out there, like, lighting the goddamn tinder. Yeah. No, I think he's even past that point. I think he's standing on the roof, urinating over the edge, imagining that he's pissing fire. Like, I <laughs> six streams. Sorry. Although we don't know. I don't know. We don't know we don't, that. We don't know that. Anyway, yeah, I think he's like, yeah. he. Uh, Could you imagine toilet training if that was the case? <laughs> it's like one of those sprinklers out in the yard. I do have a Dylan thing that I noticed in this episode. Oh, that's a sharp turn from. Yeah, just because this is a thing that I like. I saw in my notes that I'm like, Dylan, I think, is the only person in the series. Well, like when the Star Furies launch, he tells them good hunting. Like yeah. when, when, the, when the rescue party goes out, like she gives what is a very aggressive, I would say, like farewell. She doesn't say be careful out there. She doesn't say good luck. She says good hunting. It's an interesting choice of line. Yeah. Delenn's a stone cold badass. Yeah, yeah, and it's like, it makes me think that's like, that's maybe a, ben, a Minbari thing. I don't think so. I think that is a, Delenn is, a, I mean, as we'll see later in the season, Delenn's kind of ruthless at times. Like, mm-hmm. Delenn's not the soft little marshmallow religious cast that she sometimes no. uh lets herself be seen as i could also definitely see like that we know that delenn has been you know consuming a broader range of media to you know bolster her english <laughs> skills she's been watching uh top gun and x-wing and exactly. other various fighter pilot movies to improve her her military lingo oh yeah. man i'm just imagining now Delenn watching Top Gun. John, what is the significance of volleyball? Yeah. (laughs) It seems that the sand provides suboptimal traction to play this game. (laughs) So the layers of this. John saying, yeah, this is a weird Earth movie. And then Ivanova having to explain camp to Delenn. Is that movie campy, though? I don't think it is. Mm, I mean, it's pretty. Not intentionally. (laughs) <laughs> no, no, but the best camp is unintentional. I, I don't know if I agree with, I mean, maybe that's true, that's but I don't statement. think, I don't think Top Gun is campy. That's the thing. I mean, here's the, here's the thing. I will say like, here's an example. Strife, very unintentional, very camp. Yes. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> the best, the Strife best camp with a y. is unintentional. Strife with a Y. Um, Strife with a Y. No, um, I, just, I, I, I got to say, up. I disagree with you here. I don't think that Top Gun is campy. I think Tom, Top Gun is earnest military propaganda 
that when you look at it today, just happens to also read, you know, a a queer romance. I'm going to, I'm going to, I'm going to ask like every gay person who listens to the show to please at aromatic Jude and tell him (laughs) why he's wrong. It's not campy. I mean, it's terrific. Uh, Sidebar. One of my best friends in high school randomly is best friends with Kenny Loggins. So how about that? Just showed up at enough of her con at his concerts. Who, what, what like 15 year old girl likes Kenny Loggins enough to show up? Shout out to (laughs) Melissa to show up at enough Kenny Loggins concerts to the point where she starts getting recognized by the band and like starts hanging out with Kenny Loggins. It's wild. I mean, more power to her. That's I can't say that I'm buzzed with Kenny Loggins and like regularly, you know, trade comments on Facebook with his saxophone player. That's fucking (laughs) bananas. But that's, you know, that's her life. Anyway, um, um, so I have a question, and I don't know if I don't know if this is addressed in the lore or anything. Okay, but like Vorlon ships are like bonded to another person or bonded to a Vorlon, right? This is correct. Do we know that it's like it's always a one for one thing? I I have no idea because I'm like one. Do like younger Vorlons just like get stuck for like a little fighter? And is there one Vorlon who gets to- a, one Vorlon who gets the planet killer? I could also see there being a difference between like somebody's personal transport and like mm-hmm. a warship. Yeah, I could see them having a system not unlike the shadows, where the big ships are essentially sort of drones of some form that there aren't Vorlons on board. Yeah, this this is this was just me like rewatching this and thinking, wait a minute. Speaking speaking of Vorlon tech though, I find it really fascinating how both the Vorlons and the Shadows can manipulate hyperspace. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's a really solid choice for emphasizing how far ahead they are tech-wise from like the younger races. Yeah. It feels like, you know, hyperspace manipulation is you're one of those like technological stepping stones. It's an end game tech. Yeah. 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 It's like you, you get to research jump drives and that's like your big update. Granted you like do unlock a crisis if you choose like side drives. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm like, somebody please laugh at my Stellaris joke. <laughs> uh, let's see. What else have we got for this episode? I, I like the cinematic parallels between Garibaldi in that kind of like flashbacky t- type thing shouting, you know, I said I don't remember. And yeah. there was similar framing to that with Sinclair in season one when he was being questioned in that like virtual reality thing. Yeah, that was a good parallel. I hadn't thought about that, but I saw that in your notes and I was like, oh, fuck yeah. I think it's details like that that really make the show feel coherent mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. I also... There are a couple of hugs that I really like in this episode. A couple of hugs you really like? Yes. Okay. So when John gets back, there's that that scene framing that like it's framed like he and Delenn are going to kiss. And like kisses are good, but then they have this like tender, genuine, I can't believe I'm seeing you again hug, which is just fantastic. And I think that that was a good choice. Agreed. And I also like the hug between Sheridan and Ivanova when they see each other again. It's got this like really strong sibling vibe to it. Totally agree. Yeah. They definitely, they have always had a very like big brother, little sister vibe to me. Also when JMS speaks, I find it really amusing that 
apparently fans were like, oh, does this mean that Ivanova has feelings for Sheridan? And JMS was like, fuck you, no. Women and men can hug and it's fine. Yeah, I saw that. That was very good. Go get stuffed. <laughs> Which I I respect that. The the whole the whole Sheridan resurrection thing is like it's so funny just because it's like he's gotta be the biggest drama queen. He's just like yeah. I'm yeah. only gonna get to come back from the dead once. Yeah, I've gotta do it in like the most dramatic way possible. It's like he couldn't like send a fucking text message to the station. <laughs> no. He's gotta like just let himself in with his security codes and like have security show up ready to like blow him to kingdom come. It's, I mean, it's like John Sheridan has learned the most important thing about being a hero from the classic Chris Claremontian X-Men text. You cannot pick up a phone to let someone know you're alive. Yeah. <laughs> they have to find out at the, at the most dramatic moment possible. Yep. Sometimes that's a, that's when uh, your baby's about to be sacrificed to let a hell army into Earth. You know, as one does. The the other thing that I think we should talk about with this episode is uh, Lita and Kosh 2.0. Yeah, Ugh. fuck new Kosh. Yeah, fuck new Kosh. Yeah. Boy, that is that is fucking rough. And like, you know, yeah. not, you know, in, in a way that means that it's extremely well done. Yeah. Uh, you are 100% supposed to hate new Kosh for this stuff and boy do you poor lita like especially since she found so much like freedom and care in kosh classic yeah you beat me to it that's exactly what i was gonna say she loved kosh uh as a companion and guide and now she's got this other guy that is the opposite he's a you know cruel and manipulative and domineering and just a dick. Um, yeah. Yeah. No, it sucks. Not into it at all. And it's one of those times when you're like, this sucks. And I don't like seeing this, but it's it's well executed. Yeah. And this is the episode that really kind of drives it home that we've been seeing him be cruel to her. And we've been seeing the toll that, you know, giving him the psychic piggyback ride takes on her. But now, you know, now we've got showing her quarters and that there's just a bed there. Like, that he made her, he made her throw away all of her belongings, which is like... Oh, yeah, that, that, that one is... Ugh. Yeah. This is abuse of control of just, like, that. that is a manipulative tactic of, like, oh, hey, you don't need this. Yeah. Um, and and at the end of it, you know, we, we get, like, Delenn seeing, like, oh, wow, this is crazy. And then, like, then at the end, Ivanova gets to come in and say, oh, no, I've been pulled out of this situation before. Come with me, Lena. We're going to go kill Vorlon. Yeah. Yeah. Well, speaking of killing Vorlons, we want to yeah. talk about the next episode? Let's do yeah. it. Yeah. Let's do this. All right. Uh, the next episode, episode four of season four, Falling Toward Apotheosis, one of my favorite episode titles of the show, period, written by, you guessed it, JMS, and directed by David Eagle. All right, so our episode opens with literally zero preamble, 
with Ivanova doing a broadcast about the war, specifically about the Vorlon genocide fleet that's flying around wiping out any place that the Shadows have set up shop. I like that she's all, presumably this is their main weapon, because like, never take for granted that the Vorlons don't have something worse, I guess. Believe it or not, this super depressing news, with complete with Chiron of Worlds accepting refugees, is something of an emotional high point for this episode. So buckle up. From Ivanova's broadcast, we cut to our A-plot to the arrivals deck as a mass of refugees crowd the small space and a human woman who is shouting and pushing, trying to find her husband. Of course, she's trying to find her husband, who then falls over and the crowd does nothing. They don't even look down as they step over her. Uh, Karen reacts like she's being trampled to death, even though everybody is giving her plenty of space down there. But lucky for her, Jesus, I mean, Sheridan arrives and wordlessly escorts her to Zack, who is humorlessly self-aware of the fact that he has no fucking clue what's going on with all this momentous shit around him. Uh, as he leaves Karen behind, Sheridan has a brief exchange with Lore Ian, which is how he pronounces the name, which bugs me. Everybody else, in all other cases, it's Lorian, but he calls him Lore Ian. Because he's worth it. <laughs> Very good. Um... He has a brief exchange with Lorien in which he says he is going to try and save everyone. And Lorien is like, you'll fail. And he's like, well, I'll try. Random weird exchange. It's like super enigmatic and like half sentency. It's, it's fucking bizarre. Anyway, after our intro, we cut to Garibaldi sitting in his quarters watching security camera footage like a weird, bitter, goddamn creeper when Zach arrives in his quarters to talk to him. Do you think this is just like his normal porn I was going to say, I think the only difference is he doesn't have his pants on normally when he's doing this. I, I'm wondering whether this is a upgrade or a downgrade versus playing with his PPG. I didn't expect there to be another letter at the end of that. Um, <laughs> uh, no, I, I mean, yeah, it's definitely weird. He's got this like haunched, like creepy vibe to him. Zach is definitely unsettled to find Garibaldi haunched over his his security remote like Gollum with the ring, watching Sheridan specifically. And um, Garibaldi goes on a totally healthy and not at all concerning rant about how he's fine and totally ready to get back to work. But no, everybody says he's got to sit and wait. When Zach can finally get a word in, edgewise, he tells him to report to Franklin for one last slap and tickle before he can put the uniform back on. Franklin using what I'm reasonably certain is a recycled PKE meter from the Ghostbusters franchise with a keypad glued on top, gives a topless, gross, Garibaldi a scan, makes him think he's going to check his prostate. Um, <laughs> he says, oh, come on, man, I really hate that, as Franklin pulls on rubber gloves. Is he referring to the reference procedure or the gloves? You be the judge. Uh, and then has a flashback to being saran wrapped to the table. Kinky. Franklin then puts some weird scanner thing on the back of Garibaldi's head uh, to check for shadow ship integration scars. No scars being found, Garibaldi is, as far as Franklin's dubious medical expertise is concerned, entirely responsible for his own dickbag behavior and therefore cleared for duty. He espouses some very bullshit excuse for what happened to him, then grumbles off in an ill-fitting and extremely ugly shirt just as Sheridan arrives <laughs> inquiring about his test results. As they walk off, we zoom into a monitor displaying Ivanova's next report, which is decidedly more grim as more of, as several of the refugee-accepting worlds have been destroyed. We cut back to Sheridan, now in his quarters with Delenn, as he watches the report. 
and grimly tells Delenn that in all of the, the nearly 10 years he's known Ivanova, he's never heard that kind of fear in her voice. It's their first moments alone together since he came back, and she apologizes to him for her role in the trip to Zahadum. He forgives her, tells her about accepting his death, and that the only thing he held on to was the thought of her, quote, sweet face. Uh, it's an unusually awkward uh, encounter for these two. Uh, yeah. They embrace and Delenn makes a real goofy face like mushed up against his chest. Um, I'd like to never see this scene again. It's not great. Yeah. At the CPK picnic table of bad attitudes, Ivanova continues to be full of good news. Uh, but somehow Garibaldi is the biggest buzzkill at the table as he rags relentlessly on them about how fucked they all are. Sheridan arrives just in time to prevent him from dumping on Franklin, having an inexplicably good idea about taking refugees down to Epsilon, and gives Garibaldi an all-time stinker assignment. Get rid of the Vorlon. Garibaldi is a cranky, bitter asshole through the whole conversation. You know, more than normal. Like, yes, it's a garbage assignment, but even by that standard, he's a butthead. Uh, Sheridan explains very clearly that he's been kept in the dark specifically to keep the Vorlon from reading his mind, should the Vorlon have some kind of telepathy, because they don't know how much telepathy the Vorlons have. I think it's fairly, it's a fair explanation. But that seems to pacify Garibaldi exactly 0%. You would think that you, the viewer, would enjoy watching everyone be as annoyed with Garibaldi as we usually are. Uh, but no, it's mostly just fucking annoying. After he leaves... Lorien arrives with Lida and condescendingly explains that the shadows killed Kosh because they were both first ones and it's going to be harder for them, which is like, no shit, Sherlock. It's a war. Like, did they think killing the Vorlon was going to be easy and you had to break it to them that this was going to be like <laughs> difficult? I mean, they, they had a hard enough time killing that like disciple of darkness organ sucking thing. Right. I mean, Jesus. Yeah. Anyway. Franklin, in a performative act of either ignorance or ethical dismay, asks for clarification, and Sherrod explains, as if to a toddler, the utilitarian math behind assassination in wartime. War crimes! <laughs> Fun times. Garibaldi promptly heads over to New Kosh's quarters. He tells New Kosh that it's time to kick rocks, to which Kosh replies with nothing. He simply stares at them. Uh, so Garibaldi draws his piece like a cop, and tells him that they're escorting him to his ship. Now, Nukash talks and simply says, no. Uh, security extra number one, uterus is up and takes a step forward, to which Nukash replies with a quick zap. Uh, so Garibaldi opens fire. Rip red shirt. Yeah, red shirt, exactly. <laughs> uh, they might as well have been using super soakers. Uh, it has literally no effect, except that Kosh grows a little lightning spout like a fountain on his head and then is that his penis? Yeah. and then it, is, is that kosh's penis i hope so i hope so and then it like zaps around it doesn't actually hit anyone it just sort of zaps around like one of those lightning balls you buy at museum gift shops and it makes a high-pitched squeaky noise which those things also do which is why i've never bought one i find them vaguely annoying um and there's a really frankly extremely shitty cg effect of like their their uh the glass the like the the plastic of their uh their masks like breaking but it's clearly like somebody just like 
drew a squiggly line in CG on their masks. Yeah. I mean, I get it. In about, you know, later on in this episode, we're going to see where the budget went, but it's hilariously <laughs> bad. They they decide to 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 fuck out of there because they're not doing anything and they run out of his quarters down into the hall uh past some <laughs> poor alien who gets one look at this potential political assassination and is just like i'm gonna get the fuck out of here and just like runs off with his hands in the air and what is my favorite part of this entire episode smartest person on the stage it's, it's like yeah. that pac mara back um back <laughs> yeah. in sick transit veer <laughs> Yeah. Who's <laughs> just like, I ain't seen nothing. Yeah. Uh, meanwhile, uh, Sheridan gets a phone call. Londo wants the skinny on the Vorlon movements, and he doesn't want to ask his own government. He's unsettled, but seemingly unsurprised to find that they're only seven days out from Centauri Prime. But he is grateful for the info and says he owes Sheridan a favor. Uh, it's an unusually humbled Londo, it seems like. He seems sort of dimmed. But I guess that's what you get when you find out your homeworld is going to be exterminated in seven days if your power-mad emperor is not, you know, handled. Back with Kosh, Lita shows up, gills out to warn him about Sheridan moving against him. And he's like, yeah, I know. I already handled it. She's like, no, but I've got new information. She tells him that she's discovered that there is, in fact, a piece of Kosh classic, and he demands to be shown who has it. Not like told who it is, shown who has it it's convenient she leads his gullible ass into some empty hall which looks convincingly like every other empty hall they've used when they need to kill someone with a trap (laughs) you know what maybe maybe they have a murder hall the station has a murder hall maybe earth just is like we need a place to put traps yeah (laughs) They they have a murder room that's fine he cottons on at like the last possible second and He's like, open your mind to me. And she's like, no, nah, it's fine. We don't have time for this. And he's yelling at her. And finally, Sheridan's like, get the fuck out of the way. Just as he like cracks into her mind enough to, to notice the giant bright red fucking high voltage signs that some OSHA standard loving motherfucker tacked up next to the <laughs> giant power coils that are all around this dumb asshole. I really feel like abusive telepathy was not necessary for him to, to figure out what was about to happen to him here. Hey, he's only got like the one eye and it's like a very narrow cone of vision. Personally, I just think it's a case of when every when all you've got is a hammer, everything's a nail. When your yeah. one tool is, a you know, abusive, abusing people with telepathic powers, that's all you do with them. You just hit people with telepathy until they do what you want. And then Sheridan's like, ha, voltage yeah. rock and roll. Yeah, exactly. He's like, we're going to ACDC this shit. Yeah. Also, maybe Kosh can't read English. <laughs> that would be so That would be funny if Kosh is illiterate. So That's hilarious to think about. <laughs> That's so funny. Because like the, the high He's voltage signs are in English. Yeah. <laughs> um, I haven't thought about ringism in like... Ye- like literally like years <laughs> so he throws the switch and drags lita behind some boxes because i'm sure that some space cardboard is going to protect them from enough voltage to to fuck up a, a vorlon but sure crouch that'll help meanwhile like every ppg rifle they've got is up on the risers or coming out of the the woodwork if he's a telepath how did he not notice like everybody hiding in the hiding behind pillars waiting to burst out i think that was one of the reasons for lita 
luring him because he was like focusing on her. Well, if you're going to explain it, you're going to really throw off my fucking vibe here, you know? Sorry. <laughs> Sorry, this is a good this is a good vibes only space. <laughs> no, this is a dunking only space. You know how my summaries go. Anyway, they lure him into this pad. He looks around. And he's like, an, oh, fuck. There's like, you can almost hear the like, wah, 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 wah. And then his voltage kicks up. And he's just standing there getting electrified while like every PPG around is bloop, 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 bloop. This goes on for entirely too long where you're just like, is it going to work? What's going on? Finally, after like 150 PPG shots, the head Again, in the worst, the worst CG of the show, arguably to date, between this and the, the masks, just terrible. The the head of the, the encounter suit pops off like like a cork from a ba- bottle of champagne, or in this case, sparkling Vorlon. Uh, and out of the encounter suit pops not the glowing angel that you might have been expecting, but a neon newt squid. <laughs> a, a squinoot? Squinoot? Is that what I called them? Where? I cannot tell you. <laughs> yes, you called it a squinoot. Squinoot, yeah, a squinoot. I stand by that. He floats around there and they keep shooting at it, except now it's like a ghost? I don't know. Their shots go right through it, so they end up shooting each other like a bunch of yutzes. One of the guys on the ground floor takes it right in the face and falls over. Uh, right in front of Delenn, who has showed up looking soups confused. Like, hey guys, what's up? Oh shit, you're killing the Vorlon. <laughs> and JMS speaks, he's like, she's his closest confidant. Of course she knew what was going on. Yeah, buddy, whatever you say. No. Delenn has no clue what's going on here when she shows up. She's just yeah, like- nobody knew what was going on. Yeah, I don't, think, I don't think they told anybody. So she looks shocked. Uh, so the Squinute sees Delenn and he's like, all right, fine. Fuck you. And he, he turns his glowing red squinute eyes. He's got two, not one. Now he's got two eyes, which is double bad. <laughs> and goes straight for Delenn. And Sheridan's like, I'm a macho man. And dives in front of her and gets like entangled. You can't, I, I don't know why I'm gesticulating so broadly here. Uh, gets like entangled in the squinute, ta- in the squinute tentacles. And then <laughs> Lorian shows up just, you know, out of nowhere, just sort of saunters around the corner and I was like, do it, Doug. And Sheridan turns around, looks at the Vorlon, and then is just like, you know, champagne pops his own Vorlon fragment and out pops Old Kosh. And the two of them start to... Who's like, like gold instead of blue, too. Yeah, gold instead of blue. Yeah. And the two of them start to tangle around and they f- fly out of the station, go flying down the whole station. Uh, meanwhile... Whew. Back in uh, C&C, Ivanova's like, let the uh, let the Vorlon ship go since it's all pissed off like a fucking Bronco. Let this fucking thing out. And they do. The the swirly squinute lights, which are now like mashed together like one big fiery squinute ball, uh, hit the ship and the whole thing explodes and thus endeth the cautious and the ship. However, Sheridan is dead. Again, he's like 100% out. And before Delenn can get like too worked up about this, Lorian saunters over and is like, hold on, I got this. Let me recharge him. Puts his hand on Sheridan and is like, reboot. And Sheridan wakes up and Delenn is freaked the fuck out. 
reasonably. I mean, we watch TV, so we're used to and read X-Men comics. So death is like whatever. But for Delenn, this is like the second time. So fair, fairly freaked out. Later in the episode, we back on his feet and apparently fine. Back in his quarters, Delenn arrives and Sheridan decides to explain the whole thing to her. He and Lorian explain how he died and was brought back and how uh, Franklin examined him and found small things. I don't know. He's got midichlorians now? I don't know. It's not clear. Um, but basically... Nanomachines. Nanomachines? Yeah, I feel like, I feel like it's the, the, the nanites from that episode of SG-1. Yeah. It's the, the, the meme for Metal Gear Revengeance Rising. Yeah. Nanomachines, son. Yeah. <laughs> we don't have to explain anything. Yeah, they're... They're basically like Lorian's jibber-jabber science magic are are all up in his cells, keeping him alive. But he's got 20 years. That's it. Uh, My favorite part of this, she's shell-shocked. She's like, you said your kind lived to 100. I thought we'd get, like, time. And he's like, 20 isn't bad. You know, 60 is a good run. And I'm like, in the 18th century, you dumb motherfucker. Since when is 60 a good run? He asks Lorian to, like, Peace out now that he's helped drop this bomb on Delenn and delivers what is inarguably the worst <laughs> proposal I've ever seen on TV. He's it's like, Welp, I'm going to die soon and leave you a weird widow for half your life. You want to get married? And she's like, weirdly touched by this awkward, poorly delivered marriage proposal. He's like, We might be dead in two weeks. Might as well. Yeah, this seems just awful. We'll talk about it. There's a B plot. Let's get into that. The B plot takes place on Centauri Prime, and this 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 one's a lot more fun for some values of fun. Fun. <laughs> uh, Londo is still dealing with uh, Emperor Squirrel Poo. He's invited into the garden to chat, and who shows up except Discount Ross Geller, who has progressed from one giant pile of skin flakes into a big picked scab. He informs Londo that the Vorlon World Killer fleet and how they're exterminating any planet of, with shadow ships. The shadows are banking on Centauri Prime being too big to be destroyed and orders Londo to put the entire Centauri fleet into space to defend them. Londo literally cannot find enough ways to say, get the fuck out of here, including more or less saying exactly that. But the Emperor tells him to chill and we'll, we'll handle it. Uh, after Morden leaves, he takes Londo somewhere to chat, somewhere private. Well, sort of private. There is an audience of heads. As Londo looks about disgusted and tries not to barf himself empty all over the Emperor's decapitated head collection, the they Emperor says- preserved in any way as well. Like, they're Yo. clearly just rotting. Yeah, the one right next to Londo is, like, visibly leaking from its eyes. It's fucking gross. Which, apparently, that one's modeled um, on Andreas Katsoulis. <laughs> That's good. The Emperor says, of course we're not going to waste our ships defending uh, against the Borlons. Uh, but neither are we going to kick the shadow ships off. I, he wants the planet to burn. If he's going to be a god, it's only right that the entire planetary population follows him into the afterlife. Because who could possibly follow him as emperor? They all go into the pyre with him. The actor nails this scene because he has some serious fucking crazy eyes in this scene. As he explains this batshit, pants full of ferrets fucking plan that he has concocted. 
They're both stellar in the scene. Yeah. Londo looks properly yeah. nauseous and terrified the entire time. Later, back in the throne room, Londo has apparently requested an audience with the emperor, uh, which the emperor, frankly, doesn't look too amused by. He doesn't like being summoned. Londo plays him like a well-tuned fiddle and gives him a very long, flattering speech about how if he, he won't be remembered as a god if there's no one left to remember him. He proposes that they go to Narn and execute Jakar there so that the Narns will know his wisdom as the brilliant center of this entire republic. And from there, the legend of him will spread to other worlds. Cartagia agrees, and Londo says he will go with him so that he himself can execute citizen Jakar. As they prepare for the trip, Londo finds Cartagia overseeing the handling of Jakar. He says he doesn't like the way Jakar is looking at him and asks Londo for advice on how to handle it. Londo begs off, I imagine thinking that he won't kill Jakar yet, so he's safe. Whoopsie doodle. After Londo saunters away, Cartagia decides that since he doesn't like the way he's being looked at, he'll have one of Jakar's eyes plucked out. He picks one at random, and the episode ends with the guard drawing his dagger and the door closing on Jakar's cell. The cut to Jakar's face as like... As as long as like he realizes what is about to happen, and he's yeah. just like, "Lando, you dumb fuck." <laughs> yep. Also, you picked, Lando, you picked possibly the worst thing you could have said in that situation. Lando, you just used up one of your chances. Yeah, it really seems like it, doesn't it? Yep. God, where do you even begin with this fucking episode? I'm generally a huge Sheridan stan, but like, <laughs> for the love of. God, this episode is fucking rough. They approach Sinclair and uh, Sakai levels of awkwardness in this episode. They don't get there. They actually do appear to both be sentient humanoid creatures that understand (laughs) that other life exists in the galaxy and you're supposed to talk to it and touch it, which is not something I can say about Sinclair and Sakai, but it's close. I think, like, I don't know what's, I don't know, like, what, like, who pissed in GMS's drink, but, like, throughout, like, everything I've watched, I think I've watched the first half of season four, and the Sherilyn is not as good in this season. It's like, it takes a dive in the content. And I don't know what's going on here, but, like, it is the, that, that. They were better when they were just, like, flirting. Yeah. This isn't the worst on-screen proposal I've ever watched. I'm dying to know how <laughs> what you have seen that is worse than this. <laughs> like, I think it's like if it's like those rom-coms where it's like absolutely forced. I would personally like to know what his proposal to Anna looks like. Like, if this is his second go-around at it, because yeah. like, oh. for the love of God, yeah. This is something that I'm, like, averse to in real life, is, like, surprise proposals, because this is, like, it just feels very, like, forced, and it's just, like, I I don't vibe with it at all. Yeah. Mm -hmm. I think it can be romantic in fiction, because fiction lets you do that, and it's just, like, whatever. It's something that I don't care about, like, but it's so heterosexual here, and it's so just, like... (laughs) Which is interesting because the one thing that I like about the proposal is when John is explaining what an engagement ring is. Yeah, I agree. And he does it in a really nicely gender neutral way. Like 
that you know he he uses like you know when a person you see you see Johnny yeah. when a person loves another person very much. <laughs> I mean that, that that's fine. It's just it's it's more just like it's a it's almost like a rote. Yeah. yeah. It's it's rote. That's what I mean. It's just that it's like there's nothing really heartfelt about it, and mm-hmm. it just it, it's more like we've got to check this off in their relationship roadmap. I feel like the directorial guidance on this might have been off on this episode too. That yeah. like normally they have such good chemistry together, and it's just so off that yeah. it's sort of deliberately playing up the like things are awkward because. You know, John was dead and just came back from, you know, the planet after, you know, herring off after his zombie robot wife. Um, play play on that rather than like, no, you're genuinely really happy to see him and like, or anything like that. That a lot of the pieces where their relationship works so well and they have such good chemistry is based off of them having kind of joy yeah mm-hmm. without that when it's just playing on like you're nervous and upset then you know, the spark goes away yeah i i'm not not on board with this scene yeah i don't honestly like sheridan at all in this episode yeah i think like, i like my thing is like they're trying to share that like sheridan has changed but i don't think they're i I don't think they're telegraphing where they want to go with it hard enough. Yeah. Yeah. All they've done is shown that he's like acting weird, but it's not even like consistently weird because he's like silent. And like, I don't get that first scene with like the weird Karen in the first in, in the arrivals hall and his enigmatic ass conversation with Lorien. And then he's like throwing orders around at Garibaldi and like sends Garibaldi off on this, Super fucking weird mission to like evict Kosh. Which okay, we have to talk about the the first Kosh thing. Yeah. Because that is that is six level two characters <laughs> who don't even have any magic items walking into a to like a chromatic dragon's like lair and saying and say to the Rager, hey, shoot an arrow at him. Let's see what happens. Yeah. <laughs> no, yeah. it's it's so well, and it's it's hilarious to me. No, it's 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 hilarious. very funny. But like, what gets me about it is, it's a bonkers choice. Like, yeah, I hate empathizing with Garibaldi. Yeah, that's that's what I was going to yeah. say. It's like Garibaldi, like at the same time as Sheridan acting really weird, Garibaldi's getting punished by the narrative for pointing out that Sheridan is acting really fucking weird. Yeah, yeah, and like in, in, Sheridan is saying things that make sense. But it doesn't at the same time. It's very, yeah. the whole thing is there are some very high points in this episode. Well, I don't know about high points, but there's some good stuff in this episode, but it just doesn't deliver on the Sheridan stuff. You know what this episode could have done with? A like heist movie style montage of how they pulled that off. <laughs> yeah. You know, I mean, maybe if we're talking about borrowing from other genres, that actually could be a decent job because they're like, basically, it's like, oh, Garibaldi's in the dark on how we're planning all of this. And then the audience is in the dark, too. And then it just all comes out of nowhere. And you're like, 
okay, I guess they like got everybody together and set up a giant fucking Tesla coil. Like, sure. Yeah. Yeah. I think if you don't show the scene where like Sheridan has to say like, I need you to do this. I'm not going to tell you our real plan. If you cut that scene, I think it might be better. It's, it's one of those things where it's just like, there's no, there's no payoff to Garibaldi not being told in this episode beyond Garibaldi and his security red shirts getting punked. Yeah. Yeah. I have a thought about that scene too. And it's like, it's supposed to be setting up what's coming later and Garibaldi like bailing on B5. But I think like, yeah, I'm going to hate myself for saying this, but Garibaldi's sort of right. Yeah. Yeah. And I hate this. Yeah. I hate this. Like I said, I, I don't. asking valid questions. And then like the framing is so weird because like. He's being such a enormous bag of microwaved hot dogs in this scene and, <laughs> and then but then episode. he has a point at the but yeah. he has a point in this one scene where he's like this is a garbage assignment and everybody's like you're being really cranky and he's like yeah this is kind of a maybe suicide mission that sucks and they're like oh you you cranky dude and then like yeah. he is he is being like a butthole the whole episode and it's, it's just in this one case, he's eminently justified in being unhappy about this. And it's relying on the audience knowing that he's been programmed or whatever the fuck has happened to him with all that shrink wrap, right? <laughs> the shrink wrap is so funny because it's just saran wrap. It's so r- I'm, like, I get it. I get what 90s sci-fi was doing and what we had to do. But it's so fucking. It's like fun. it's like okay, we can get a we can get a giant roll of this at Costco for five bucks. I think part of it is that like you get is that we get these various things of what's being done to Garibaldi, but we don't really ever have we don't really have the idea yet of what he's actually supposed to be doing. Yeah, it's a little too slow burn, and it's and it's weirdly like disjointed because he's asking valid questions, but we also know that he's been like programmed in some way to you know sow chaos and like people are suspicious of him and like he's all bent out of shape but like also you know his story about what happened to him absolutely does not hold water that thing is like you know a sieve with extra holes punched in it it's so weirdly inconsistent that it leaves the audience not really knowing how they should feel i think it's just like yeah, it, I think it's like it's a little bit too messy and like it like a little bit more it, making it a little tighter would have worked there. So Anna, you mentioned this in your notes, and I'm curious. Mm-hmm. I wonder what the cutoff is for this. At what age group do you think is the cutoff where people don't know what calling collect is? Yeah, that's a good question because it's <laughs> it's in the it's in the episode that Sheridan like snarks that. Um, you know, Londo's probably calling collect. It's not quite to the Zima level of like the conceit that this has survived to the B5 era when it hasn't survived to now. But like, there's a whole bunch of people who basically wouldn't know what calling collect is. Yeah, I mean, like, it still exists. Yeah, unlike it still Zima. Exists. I actually, yeah, I like, I looked this up and it's like, okay, AT&D never, do, never, never does it. Or doesn't do it anymore. But it's like the... I mean, is anywhere except for prison do it anymore? 
I guess it's like you can do it from a payphone, I guess, but uh Weird. I mean, AT&T no longer does it. Verizon stopped doing it in 2016. That is a thing that no longer exists because burner phones exist and cell phones exist. Yep. But I don't think we're quite to the point of people being like, what the fuck is calling collect? Oh, no. I think if you ask people who are like five years younger than me what a collect call was, they would have no idea. Interesting. I'm like, because that's barely in my consciousness. Like, unless, like, the last time I used a collect call was at summer camp and it was 2002. (laughs) But it's like, with everybody having a cell phone now, it's like, if people like 25 or younger know what a collect call is, I would ask how they learned it because that would be interesting. (laughs) There will be like commercials for it and stuff, but nobody does that anymore. Yep. This is just like, oh, hey, random generational thing of, wow, 25 years. That's a, that's a big flip. Yep. A couple things from like the opening part of the episode. Crispy Morden in his weird monk costume is- You mean Scabby Morden? (laughs) Yeah, he's like, he's Scabby now. Um, it's funny to me just because he's just like this, he's just this weird little gremlin now. He's just like, I've got my little bunks habit. Meanwhile, I feel like the progression is incorrect because I feel like he would have been scabby first and then flaky later. Yeah. Hmm. Um, yeah, who knows? Maybe shadow biology is weird. Also, Cartagia has now ascended to a new level of Lord of the Rings reference of, he is dead of Thor! Yeah, I got, I, I definitely got that reference when you put it in the notes, and I was like, wow, that's, I'm embarrassed I didn't pick up on that, because he really is. <laughs> Other random bits, I am glad that Zach Allen recognizes that he is a supporting character in this, <laughs> and he's just like, I don't have to understand shit, I just have to do my one job. I have an NPC, thank you. I'm just going to, like, I, I'm going to follow my pre-programmed thing, and I will get called into the plot on occasion. I'm not here to have independent thoughts. The, the, the security <laughs> officer that we should have had from the beginning, honestly. Yeah. yeah, seriously. We have Franklin being reasonably professional, albeit with, yeah, like, season- a bo- he's got kind of a wacky bedside manner here, but... Yeah, which is well, fun. I mean, he's yeah, flirting like- with his ex, so what do you what do you expect? And, like, if a doctor makes a joke about, like, poking my prostate, I'll, 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 I'll probably laugh. Yeah. Um, I also want to call out the absolutely fucking bananas ugly shirt that Garibaldi wears in this scene. <laughs> it's so bad. It looks like a leopard print got barfed onto, a, like, a silk shirt two sizes too big for him. It's unreal. And then somehow had... um camo screen printed on top of that yeah it's it's really bad tragic truly on a more like dire note the only time we see a vodum in this episode are the recorded messages yep um which i like it's a very good like framing device and ivanova saying to the camera right now fear is our greatest enemy is a banger of a line yeah of, of like how to open this episode absolutely she she's super good like even though she's not engaging with the plot directly it shows that she's like actively doing something throughout all of this like that you know she's been coordinating the refugees etc on the costuming note i like to kind of mention something that i can't believe i'm mentioning it now after like all this time but something that i kind of picked up on that I like with the Vorlon costuming is that so with your encounter suits, you'd if you just looked at the encounter suit in a still, you would 
maybe expect it to like float or hover or glide or something like that as it travels along the floor. Mm -hmm. But that's not how the Vorlons move. They have a gait to them. You know? Yeah. And I'm sure that that's because it's a person under, you know, the couch upholstery. But I think it sells them as like realistic in a way that like if they were a robot on a wheels wouldn't really work. Having them move in that way that you associate with like being a person yeah. is really, really solid. Yeah. Per- I mean, personally, I think that like if you did like a float with them, that would be cool because it just does give that sort of like etherealness. I do like it though that like it causes the the it to to shift a little bit, like yeah. wave. Yeah. And that, and the upholstery sways. If we you know, in our rebate bab five, I would make the Vorlons float and I would give one of them the Mr. Sinister cape. <laughs> <laughs> Nukash definitely needs a cape. Yeah, like just has like the tassel cape that just like yep. Shifts and flu- shifts and like time. Yeah, no, I uh, I'm on board with that. That's a good look for for yeah. a Vorlo- for a nefarious Vorlon. I think based on the based on the tech at the time, though, I think oh. that the Vorlons would look a lot cheesier and date more dated now if they were you know rolling around on wheels versus mm-hmm. like having an actual person like mm-hmm. trundling all that around. Yeah. Oh, my last thing. Yes. The breather masks. They take off the breather mask and stick it back on the shelf and close the little door. So whoever goes in there next is going to be like, fuck. It's, why are these broken? Yeah. Well, why are they broken? Or do they get cleaned in there? I'm assuming that there's like a UV sanitizer in there. I hope okay. so. Because I just, I had this moment of thinking like, you ever worn a mask like that? With like, you breathe out and it like fogs up and there's like the, oh, okay. it's gross. And then thinking you like pick one up off the shelf and put it on and there's somebody else's like humid backwash breath all up in there already. No. Yeah, I I would imagine they get cleaned. Well, you know what? You wouldn't imagine that there's fucking Zeman collect calls in the future. So don't take anything for granted. That's all I'm saying. On that note. Just uh, we didn't really have any like guest stars in this episode in these episodes. So yeah. Shrug emoji. We don't have any. All your faces. We'll look into that. Other than the the continued presence of Wayne Alexander, who is a questionable choice. So next time we are going to be covering episodes five and six. I have no idea how this is not going to be like a giant sized episode. Like this one Um, was, you mean? Yeah. Like no, this is it's gonna be like planet size where we're gonna Should we perhaps split those up? We might. We might need to. Um, because we're going to be doing the long night next. Yep. Which is a fucking bananas episode. And then into the fire. Which is also bananas. Yep. You know what? Let, let's make it. Let's make a call now. Uh, we're going to split those into two episodes because uh, they're big. They're huge. Yep. They're bonkers. So next time, join us for episode five, the long night. Yep. Until next time. Be seeing you. The Babylon Project is an independent production. All views expressed on the show are our own. Clips from the original show remain property of the original owner. Music information can be found in the show notes. The rest of the show is licensed under a Creative Commons 4.0 share-alike no derivatives license.
recording.